Welcome to the Inner Source Healing Podcast, the program about healing from toxic abuse. My name is Deborah Ashway. I am a licensed clinical mental health therapist and also a licensed clinical addiction specialist. But I have also been where you are now and have experienced the devastating effects of toxic abuse. It has been a long journey through the path of healing, but when we finally awaken from the trance that is so easy to fall into around toxic people, life can be absolutely amazing. It's like you can finally breathe and live and experience life in full, vivid, extraordinary color. And I want to help people get there by healing from the dependency, the codependency, the trauma bonding, and the abuse. The healing process brings us through those long-standing false perceptions that held us back from experiencing a more fulfilling and meaningful life. I am so excited for today's podcast because I have a special guest that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And our guest is Nikki Eisenhower from Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. And Nikki Eisenhower is a licensed professional psychotherapist and a life coach helping people heal with emotional healing. Welcome, Nikki, and thank you so much for joining me. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to have you here. And I've been listening to your podcasts and I was thinking the same thing that we we are so aligned in our goals and our beliefs and our experiences. And so I'm really excited to have you here. Nikki helps turn head knowledge into heart knowledge in finding your path to wholeness, balance and peace. And I absolutely love the name of your podcast, Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. In fact, um, when I was telling my staff about this, they were like, oh, I love the name of that podcast. Oh, I'm glad. So, but I'm interested in how you came up with that name because it, it is so fitting to what we're doing. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I was sitting with a client. I've been a counselor since 2006. And I was sitting with a client who was severely sexually abused by her own father. And she was kind of sitting on my floor and just, I mean, she just had kicked dog energy and something just kind of came over me. And in that moment, I said, you know, it's so easy to look at all the, the hard parts and kind of be with all the part, the, the hardness of this, the difficulty, the struggle. But do you ever think of yourself as an emotional badass? I mean, look at what you've overcome and what you've endured. There's such a strength there. There's such a, a power. And the second that I said it, her entire body language changed. It was like she grew a foot taller. And she was like, I, yeah, I like that. I never, ever thought of it that way. And I, I think that's a very, very important point. And one of the things I'm concerned about as the internet continues to evolve, especially with our younger people, is this sort of victim mentality of, you know, I'm so crushed, I'm so broken when things happen, but we are so strong. We are such resilient creatures. And I think it's such a, a needed message, idea, mindset, feeling, vibe to no matter what hard crap we go through, because wow, are we going to go through it in this life? No matter how you slice it, no matter how different our personal experiences are, being alive is hard. It's beautiful and it's wonderful too, but it is tough. And so being able to sort of look at yourself and go, wow, look at what I've been through instead of take the pain and sort of wear it as a lens for what other pain is going to come at me. Let me shrink and hide and be small and wounded and actually go, wait a minute, 
I'm, I'm really, really powerful. I, I think is a very, very important piece of work to, to hold on to, to grow into. So if you hear that and you're like, I don't feel very strong, I don't know about that. Well, keep at it. Like give yourself some permission to look at yourself through some lenses of, wow, look at what I've survived. So true. I love that. Yeah, that is so true. But I also love moxie, moxie, where moxie meets mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I, I looked that up just because I, I just, you know, you hear it all the time, but I didn't even know if it was an actual word. And it does like force of character, determination, nerve. And then I learned when I was looking it up that it's attributed to an American word meaning dark water. I but, didn't know that. I've never heard the dark water part. I mean, doesn't that strike something with you? Like people that are in this dark water. You know, kind of like just what you said, mm -hmm. that they've been through it. They've had to endure this. They've mm -hmm. built up this resilience, right? Well, I didn't ever intend to work with highly sensitive people. And of course, beginning my career and beginning college, I didn't know that that's what I was. And it just kind of started to dawn on me that that's who was finding me. And so that developed my next specialty of highly sensitive people. And one of the things that I resist with fervor is this idea that because we're highly sensitive, we're delicate, exactly. wrong, incorrect. I will fight that <laughs> like into the earth. We, we are feisty and sort of giving into this kind of popularized like delicacy. And, you know, I need other people to be okay, or I can't be okay, or I need other people to do something, or I can't be okay. It's just, it's wrong and it's not helping people. And earlier in my career, I wouldn't have spoken with such like black and whiteness, but there, there are clearly some things that are out there in the atmosphere that are just wrong. They're not helping us. It's why our suicide rate is wildly, frighteningly climbing. If all the things we have been doing towards mental health were actually working, that would be declining and it's not. So we have got to, especially as mental health professionals, I think find more of our moxie and lean in and kind of speak to some of this and go, no, 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 no. No. You, one of my sayings is you've got to acknowledge if you've been victimized, but do not buy real estate in the victimhood. It's a shitty place to live. Right. That is so true. And you're right. The sensitivity. And I mean, I think that kind of goes along with a lot of programming of being too sensitive. It's just kind of been squashed. Mm -hmm. But and it does. It takes people like you who have shared your story to sort of pave the way. And it really does. It takes moxie. It's so brave because it's not easy to overcome and be able to do that. And it's it's really kind of like a beacon for others to be able to do the same thing. And I love that you've shared your story on your podcast. Um, you're just a source of guidance and strength, and it really does light the way. Today's podcast is focused on codependency and the ultimate fear of abandonment. And codependency, it's, you know, it kind of goes along with what you're saying, because that is that programming. It's becoming dependent on what others think. Um, what can you share in your experience about that? Is that something that you've had to heal through? Oh, yes. If there was a codependency Olympics, I would have been a gold medal <laughs> winner for many, many years. I am from the South. Um, I grew up in New Orleans. And so I think that the South for sure has more codependency. It's part of our culture. We call it politeness or we call it etiquette. But, ooh, there's a fine line between holding a polite space for a person and becoming a doormat. Yeah. One of my favorite definitions for codependency that's more current is self-love deficiency. 
Oh, I love that. Self-love deficiency. Yep. I mean, older definitions are were basically like you're kind of addicted to needing the approval of others. And so we get caught in these people-pleasing traps, which is really just a complete self-denial. And I, I think that really nails it. That was a big oof. Like that just hit me like in the gut the first time I heard that. It was like, yes, of course, that's what I was doing at the peak of my codependency behaviors and thoughts. I was deficient in self-love. And there's a saying uh, in yoga, I'm a yoga teacher, though I haven't taught in a while. And, and there's a saying that says, we teach what we still need to learn. And in terms of codependency, when that's your original programming and the world invites us to overfunction for other people constantly, I think this is something that I'm going to work on all the days of my life. And that used to stress me out. Now I have a great piece about it. Like we get to learn how to stop getting our goodness from pleasing others. And that's not a permission to walk around displeasing others, but it is a permission to step up. I think we give away what we most need. And so we tend to give away you know, I come from a lot of dysfunction and a lot of abandonment. My biological father fully abandoned me by about the age of nine. And from the age of, I lived with him till I was six and I was a daddy's girl. My mother is a sociopath. She's cold, kind of that ice queen archetype. Mm -hmm. And so even though my father was a narcissist, he wasn't a sociopath. And so he was actually warmer comparatively to my mother. So I kind of gravitated towards him, of course, in ways I didn't understand. And as they divorced in a messy, ridiculous war of the roses sort of divorce, when they didn't even have any property or assets, they just fought, like not even any money to fight over, just fighting. Their their divorce lasted seven years. And so I would wait on the porch for my biological father at my grandmother's house all day long. I was tenacious. I was determined. And I was so desperate. I can remember desperately just every car that would drive by, I'd go, that's Papa. He's coming for me. That's Papa. He's coming for me. I mean, hours and hours and hours. It absolutely damaged my attachment, you know, to to trusting to my worth, you know, to to be old enough to kind of understand that I was being rejected, that I was not wanted that I was unimportant. That is a tragedy of having parents that are either personality disordered or tragically immature. And I do think that's something we don't talk about enough in mental health is that a lot of times what we're either trying to heal or what we're trying to do within ourselves is frankly, like grow the hell up. And we don't have a lot of examples of what an actual adult is. We, we kind of nurse in our American culture, this very middle school kind of attitude. We can see it in how people relate through their politics. We can see it online. It's kind of glorified. I think that's confusing for a lot of people because if you have immature parenting, you might not have been beaten with bricks. And I say that because if you're beaten with bricks or if, if, if atrocious things happen to you, like later in my life, my mom remarried, I was molested by that man and grew up and put him in prison. When we are raised by people that don't have the maturity to help us know that we have worth. Right. Because they haven't really grown into there. So how the hell are they going to give us some self-worth? The damage of just being abandoned, of nothing happening, him not showing up. Even at a very young age, I was creating stories of my worthlessness. So from there, you must have found yourself in other codependent relationships because you didn't have that self-worth. Nobody gave that to you. 
Well, that's where I learned it. I learned how to be, you know, a great little student. And there are silver lining to that. I went far in school. I let school be an anchor for me. But I desperately tried to please the people around me because my father disappeared and my mother didn't light up for me. And so by being a good girl, by making people happy, by doing things for them, they would smile and they would say, good girl, and they would say, thank you. And and so it, it's such an almost like tragically precious way of developing codependency that I think happens to so many of us that it's so sort of pure, right? And that's the heartbreaking part is that we we do need attention when we're little. You know, we need care. We need to be seen. We see our self-image based on how other people reflect back to us. So earnestly, I developed not in a conscious way, but in a subconscious way, this way of moving through the world that was like, I'll be whatever I think you need, mm -hmm. because then if you need me, you won't go away from me. Right. And my God, is that dangerous? I married a sociopath that, and I started that relationship at 17 and mm -hmm. he had a, a little girl who was 15 months old. So in that scenario, I bonded with her and I didn't want to leave her. My wounded inner child wanted to give her everything that I didn't have. And so I put up with things that even in my codependency, I wouldn't have. His cruelty, his abuse, his neglect, his manipulation, his law breaking. Would you say in that relationship, was there any codependency on him in that relationship as well? Not just him his family. So it's not just one person. You know, my family system was messy, hurtful. Right. Like even the good parts of my family were still tough. I had a grandmother that loved me very much, but man, she was tough. She had a German background and was just no nonsense and expected me to really be the adult in the family because my grandmother knew that my mother wasn't. And so I had a lot of pressure, a lot of parentification. I was the eldest sibling. And so that there's another kind of piece of the pie of developing codependency as an older sibling that takes care of the younger ones, particularly when your parents aren't. You know, so I learned to give so much away, so much away. So of course I had self-love deficiency, codependency, right. and absolutely I carried that through. It was as much of a heartbreaking grief for me to divorce, even though it was right. I knew I needed to do it at a point. I divorced my first husband. I left him at the age of 24. But I also grieved his family because they had been very close to me, almost like a mob-like family where when you're in, oh, you were in. I was in with all of his big giant family. And then the second that I was out, I didn't expect to be rejected by the entire family. I had gone no contact with my family, which means I really put my eggs in the basket of his family. And I, I really was unprepared that he would tell his family to never speak to me again and that they would honor that. And so I, I lost that child that I loved. I was in that relationship for almost eight years. And so I, I absolutely felt split wide open. Wow. Like you, that's the you journey did. to self-respect. You lost, uh, it sounds like uh, almost everything. You lost mm -hmm. that very important child that was in your life. You lost a marriage that you thought you had. You thought you married somebody that would be a good partner, obviously. Mm -hmm. You lost an entire, you already had no contact with your own family. Yes. And you lost this family. Yes. What did you turn yes. to? I was so depressed that from this position in my life, looking back, I truly can only say that something must have been watching me and guiding me. My depression was so severe 
that I couldn't move sometimes that, that my sensory motor part of my brain was actually depressed. I don't know how I got through it other than I think I have a bigger purpose in my life and, and there is no way to get around it. I had to move through. I cried almost constantly. I didn't have energy. I tried to bury everything about myself so I could show up and act like I was okay. At that time, my adoptive father, who was my abuser, who eventually spent 14 years in jail for abuse at that time, gave me a gun. I was living in an, a very dangerous part of New Orleans and I was so depressed. And when I look back on that, I very much believe he wanted me to kill myself. He wow. could sense that I, I was, my memories were from him were blocked. So at that time, I didn't know that I was sexually abused. So that was also playing on me in ways I had no idea. It's part of why I felt so heavy. I felt like I weighed 10 million pounds to get up and get a glass of water. I would have to concentrate. And I, I share that to say that if you're if you're listening and your, your depression is so deep, I want you to know that you, you still have to fight it. You right. still have to fight it. And in those small moments, you are growing muscles of resiliency, even though it might be hard to see or point to or look at. And I didn't know that I was forging ahead so hard. I felt pathetic. I felt wrong. I felt worthless. But it's even in those very, very, very basic things that you start to build yourself back up. That's the dark water right there. Oh, that's, that's the dark water. That's the dark water. And I just want people to know that you can absolutely grow past that. And I think part of the trick is it doesn't feel like you can. Mm -hmm. And so you have to almost have a faith. I mean, that's part of why I share my story because I yeah. didn't have anybody to look at to go, wow, you really can get through some really hard shit in this life and make it to the other side. Right. Oprah became one of those people for me. She was one of the first people to talk about being abused publicly and she was successful. And you're right. So many of my clients and probably a lot of our listeners want to know how, how to get through stuff like that. It is really a lack of self-love. How do you get to that? And you think there is something, what did you say, greater or looking over, watching over you? I, I think spirituality has to be a part of mental health. It has to be. And when you have religious abuse, and I had some, my mother worked for a church, you know, my dad, the abuser, the adoptive dad, you know, he played golf with the pastor. I mean, you know, abusers are good, you guys, they are good at schmoozing people. And that's part of what made me feel crazy because they could schmooze people. And I didn't know how to articulate what was going on with me. I think forging ahead is such an important teaching and we have to do better teaching people that that is their job. You know, we all kind of come into this world going, what is my job as a human being? We don't get a pamphlet that says, hey, you know, these are the, the ways that you find your purpose and you move ahead and you're going to have to find some things that are your interest and your passion. And those are going to get you through tough times. And so we really can ha start to practice a faith. That's very hard when you can't trust your parents. I mean, for most of us, I, I coming from New Orleans, like it's a very Catholic town. I was raised Catholic and there was so much shame in Catholicism, right? There's Catholic shame, you know? And so on so many levels, we have to hold some self-respect and self-regard, even when we don't know what that is yet and give ourselves some permission to move through. If it's hard to trust our parents and our parents weren't in a safe place to fall. When I was younger, 
the thought that I had was basically, yeah, how the hell am I going to trust a higher power? Something I can't see, I can't touch, I can't draw a picture of it. I don't know what it looks like. I couldn't trust these real live human beings. I can't trust the woman that I grew in her body, but I'm going to trust this nothingness. Yeah, right. That was my anger, y'all. Like I had so much to grieve, so much to grieve. And when we grow up in hardship, that's the truth of it. We call it depression, but we're really, we're grieving what we lost in childhood. We lost our innocence. You know, we lost the ability to sort of have this more idealized childhood and none of us get an idealized childhood, but we grieve that ideal. We don't just grieve what we lost. So we have to go through the pain of it. We have to get it out of our bodies. And that was something that nobody had ever told me. I didn't understand. It took me many, many years to get to yoga and to hear a yoga teacher. This was after having a master's degree as a counselor. Was there like a, a point in your life that you can look at when you were kind of on one side of it, you were on this hurting and painful Mm -hmm. side, codependent side, Mm -hmm. and then a point where you moved, you pushed and pushed and pushed and grieved and hurt and felt all the pain and moved all the energy past you Mm -hmm. to where you got to kind of the other side of it going, wow, I guess I can love myself. I guess I don't have to depend on anything else besides myself or my, you know, whatever's looking after you, whatever your spiritual belief is. The truth is that I think I had to find my therapist. And and when you have a background similar to mine, though it might be very different, but similar, I, I think there's a deep truth that mental health in general doesn't deal with very well. I needed a mother figure because we look to our mothers to know who we are. They reflect back to us. And that's how we grow into our self-image, our self-worth. So if what's being reflected back at me is frankly and generally just shit, then that's how I felt. So I had to go through terrible therapists, (laughs) terrible therapists who didn't get it, you know, who Mm -hmm. all of a sudden would go, well, what about Jesus? You know, like, that's not what I needed to hear in that moment. I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't open to that. They didn't really see me. And that might've been the most depressing part of all. And if anything got me closer to suicidal ideation, it was that. Mental health doesn't want to know that or deal with that very well, but there's nothing more frightening than sitting in front of a therapist who is supposed to be trained, who's supposed to help me understand myself. And I can tell that they're scared by my trauma story. So you found a good therapist as therapist. I kept going. I kept going. And if there's anything that you take away from this, if you're really struggling out there, do not give up. Like there are good healers and helpers, wise people, people who actually mature. And if you just keep going, that's the secret. If you just keep going, You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You don't have to know how it's all going to work out. You just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and you will wind up somewhere. Yeah. And if you wind up in a crappy spot and you keep walking, you can keep going until you wind up in a better spot. And finally, I tried with another therapist and I still work with her to this day. She is, for all intents and purposes, my spiritual mother. It's not just the techniques, it's the relationship. Mm -hmm. And had I not had experiences with Lisa being able to model that for me, how the hell would I learn how to do that for myself or for other people? It's part of the human condition. It has always been true since the beginning of time that we learn from watching other human beings. That's really like the essence of the human condition. And so Lisa, and in so many ways has held space for me. And no matter how intense I was, would just give me this energy of you're okay. And you're not as difficult as you think you are. 
actually, you're kind of easy for me to help. You know, and, and that to someone whose parents treat their children like they're just burdened since the mo- first moment, that is shocking to come to somebody with your deepest, darkest and have them go, yeah, not so scary. Or right. thank you for sharing that with me. That is so much a big part of the therapeutic process. And I think so many people on both sides of the chair realize. See, you have sort of answered every question before I've asked it. <laughs> My next question was, what do you feel is the fundamental key for healing codependency? And you just kind of summarized that. It really is. It's having somebody else hold that space for you, mm-hmm. having somebody else take accountability when you're used to nobody taking accountability. Yes. Yes. And I can add this, and this is a big part of how I practice and how Lisa practices too. The, the fine line there is that we need people in our world, friends too, partners too, not just therapists who model and teach us without developing a dependency. It has to be people Lisa really wanted for me, and I'm sure wanted for all her other clients too, me to step into my own power. She was not there to take any power. And if a therapist has an ego problem, they will want to take some of your power, whether they consciously know that or not. And that will not help you. You are your own authority figure. And that's a big part of healing codependency. Absolutely. Because we look for that authority approval, right? That, that's what we're doing with our codependent behaviors and thought process. We're like, please, somebody else outside of me approve of me. If enough outsideness approves of me, then maybe I can have some self-approval. And that's backwards. It'll never work like that, you guys. Mm-hmm. I've never, ever, ever, ever. If it would, I'd be advocating for it, but it doesn't work. And so we have to have this sort of art form of someone being willing to offer us some stability, some strength to sort of support us as a support beam so that we can learn how to become the load-bearing beam. In codependency, we try to be the load-bearing beam for other people. Right. Well, we're trained that way. A lot of people are trained that way from early childhood, as you described, as you were. And then they end up finding themselves in these unhealthy relationships because they still have that programming of trying to be the one that supports everybody else, trying to be the ex, the internalizer. It takes on all the responsibility. A lot of my clients and, and probably yours and a lot of our listeners kind of have an awareness of this, but are looking for just some red flags because it's so it's just such a vague awareness and they're and it and it's so familiar to them. They're not able to get outside of that to kind of look in and see it. What, if any, do you see as some red flags, whether it's for a therapist or if it's coworkers or if they're in a new relationship or if it's family members are of somebody who wants to foster that sense of dependency to continue the codependency behaviors from somebody? Okay. Well, so one of the things to understand about this codependent dynamic that I certainly fell into for many years is that our high sensitivity and our codependency it's like narcissists can smell us. We call them energy vampires, right? Well, guess what? Our codependency is like the best smelling blood ever. Like they can smell us out. And so that's like a like a screwed up, unfortunate way that those puzzle pieces fit together. So when we're healing codependency, we are actually sort of changing that puzzle shape because I don't want to fit with narcissists, y'all. <laughs> and we have a lot of power to change our puzzle piece. So now today, if a narcissist walks up to me and basically gives me a message of, oh, I would really like you to be codependent. Mm-hmm. 
I don't fit that anymore. Okay. So the truth is healthier people won't let us be so codependent. Healthier people will say things like, Hey, you've done enough for me. Let me do something for you. Codependent people have atrophied receiving muscles. We have to lean into the discomfort. Some of you have got to learn how to almost sit on your hands and bite your lip and just let somebody else do something for you. And you have to practice that. And it's as uncomfortable as the first time somebody goes to the gym. (laughs) It feels so awkward. I can remember times of wanting to like crawl out of my skin or melt into the floor because someone healthier in my life was like, no, sit down, stop doing things. Let me bring you a drink. Let me bring you something like you've done enough. Let me make a meal for you. And the truth is like our body wants to like run in the other direction. I say a lot that trauma flip-flops things. That's a flip-flop. It is absolutely unnatural to come into the world and not allow other people to do for you. Okay. So some of the red flags are people that are comfortable using you too much. That's, that's going to be a very hard dynamic for you to change your own codependency. If somebody else is showing up, putting those puzzle pieces together, and then you're kind of locked in, like you've got to kind of break those puzzle pieces apart and separate from that and really get some fresh people around you. And you've, you've got to be willing to feel people out. It's not that I left the first super codependent dysfunctional relationship that I had and then had wonderful relationships. I did better. I've actually had two divorces. I'm now married to a very good match for me in my third and final marriage. But my second marriage was better. But guess what? When you come from that much dysfunction, better is not healthy. (laughs) And I don't think I could have avoided that. I'm at great peace that I needed to sort of stair step and coming from so much severe dysfunction. It's probably too idealized to expect to do any kind of work that will just launch you into full on healthiness. So if we can understand that and talk about it more, then I can tell people who are recovering in such ways, slow down in your relationships, slow down so that you can get to know yourself, slow down so that you can get some time and space away from your original childhood dynamic. Sometimes it just takes time and space. Yeah, absolutely. You're answering all of my questions. (laughs) You are. Thank you so much. That is, I mean, you're right. There are red flags. There's certainly red flags. There's a number of resources that you can go to to find the red flags, but you're 100% right. It really is that programming within ourselves. And I love how you said, we're going to feel uncomfortable because that's one thing that I always tell my clients and my listeners is where is that in your body? Where is that discomfort? And you described it and it's going to feel very, very uncomfortable. So maybe that's a red flag. If you start feeling that discomfort, maybe that there's healthy discomfort, like working out at the gym and unhealthy. And at first I think that feels like a very cruel trick. Like, (laughs) great. I was uncomfortable in the dysfunction and now I'm going to be uncomfortable in the healing. Like go jump in a lake, like, like get away from me with that message. Right. And so it's okay to be angry at that. Like, so we've got to go through our stages of grief and that's part of why anger is one of them. So a lot of times when I get a really good fit client, I go, why did you want to work with me? And they go, I've been listening to your show for a while. And a lot of what you said has pissed me off. And then I thought, yeah, this is the lady that can help me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so our ego is is angry that we have to now do this work when right. we when we can look out at the world. You know, my family members have not done an iota of the work that I have done. It's part of why I'm no contact. 
Yeah. And I've lost my sisters and I've lost my parents and I have grieved that. And I am very much at peace with that. It's another thing we don't talk about. Thank goodness. Most people do not have to go. No contact. That is not something taken lightly. That's not like, oh, my parents annoying me. I'm going to not talk to them for the next few years. Mm-hmm. No, but when people are truly, truly toxic, we hit a point where we have to really get real with ourselves. There's a big difference between abuse that comes from inadequacy and toxicity. My inadequate parents with my clients get to a place with their adult children where they can go, wow, I would have parented you differently now. We would never tell anybody to stick their finger in a toxic chemical and just hang out there. So at a point I had to look at myself and go, if I really, really think that my family is toxic, then I have to get really real with myself about what that means. Because this expectation of I'm going to hang out with them, I'm going to go be in toxic waters. And then expect my nervous system to be okay. At a point, I had to admit that that was me being cruel to myself. That was me not loving myself. And so we have to get very real and we have to name some things that nobody ever wants to name, not a therapist, not a client, but we have to get real with that. And in this modern age, you know, we throw that around like it's almost cheapened. Oh yeah. Toxic people, blah, blah, blah. No, Mm. no, 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 no. No, most people are inadequate. Right. Very different. And you brought up a good point too of the grieving process, because if you are to heal from codependency on a toxic environment or a toxic family, and especially if it's a family of origin, that that's what you've known, it's super hard to break from that. And it's hard to go no contact because you have to go through that grieving process. And there's going to be all the stages of grieving, including anger, but the anger you're right. It does serve a purpose. And it also helps to serve the purpose of building those boundaries so that we don't continue to return to that. Absolutely. And your boundaries are truly with yourself. You know, I had to figure out my boundaries with my family. Boundaries are not wagging a finger at somebody else and telling them what the line is. All of us try it. There's no getting to good boundaries work without trying that first, but then you're left in the position of doing that. And then someone looking you square in the face, stepping right over your boundary and looking at you like, what are you going to do about it now? Right. And that's a point where we panic, right? Like, oh shit, the boundary didn't work. What do I do now? You know, we can make requests of people, but when it comes down to it, our boundaries are our own container. Our boundaries are our own limits and learning what those limits are. And mm-hmm. I didn't know my limits. That's, that's part of recovering from sexual abuse. That's part of the consequence is that my, my limits were violated and all abuse takes mm-hmm. our choice away because it's uncomfortable. And if we could choose differently, we wouldn't choose the abuse. Power is in choosing wisely for ourselves moving forward. I'm a yeah. big fan of inner child work. I think that is the crux of what has helped me actually really heal. And that is about reparenting our inner psyche and inner child sounds really woo woo to a lot of people, but it's not, it's just an inner state. And the truth is I didn't get what I needed to grow up. So I had some wounded inner child parts that needed guidance from grown up me. I talk a lot about cultivating the wise woman and the wise man inside of us so that we can kind of start to understand that we have to turn down the volume and take away the power from our inner critic our inner bully, whatever you want to call it, that mean, mean part that develops when we're abused and our worth is low. And we want to dial the volume up on our wisest part. And if you get really honest with yourself and I say, what part of you is self-talking right now? We have to learn how to go, no, 
you are not allowed to speak that way to me inside of my own head. If I couldn't do that with myself, how the hell am I going to let up, like find a way to have other people be respectful or have healthy relationships? It all starts with the relationship with self. We all want acceptance from everybody else. We want respect. We want care. We want kindness. We don't want to be told mean things. The truth is, if you are recovering from abandonment, from childhood trauma, you're probably pretty mean to yourself. You're right. And that inner child work, working on returning to your truest self, which you're more your truest self when you're a child, but you also have to heal some of that stuff. And any kind of assault, any kind of abuse blurs boundaries. So it's hard to learn. So all of that contributes and returning to yourself and doing that inner child work. Yes. Yes. If you don't understand how to look at your expectations, you cannot possibly give yourself the boundaries you need. Exactly. Yes. So a lot of this can sound like a bummer and like a lot of work <laughs> needing to do, right? Here's, here's the real truth of it. It is awesome to do this work. It is awesome. There's hard parts to it, but as you move through and get to the other side, the coolest thing about healing that I can share with you is that when we come from a lot of trauma, we are highly, highly skilled observers. We tend to have an intuition that is available to us as the strongest tool that we can possibly have. Healing has helped me learn the difference between anxiety and my intuition. So I have this inner tool that I get to use and it has an accidental PhD in noticing narcissism. It has an accidental PhD in noticing the people that want me to be codependent with them. And now today my intuition goes, oh no, ick. And that clarity, it is the most beautiful, powerful. I mean, my inner child can look up at wise woman me and relax because she can look at me and go, Ooh, grown up wise woman me knows what she's doing. And that is a peace and a security that my younger self could not, cannot believe that I have achieved for myself. And that is not unique to me. And no matter how broken and hurt that you feel or lost or overwhelmed, or life feels hard, especially these last few years and popularized victim mentality. Ew. If you do this work, it is inevitable, you know, inevitable that you will get to a place where you love yourself, where life is good, where you can focus on the things that are good. And that is a piece, oh, it'll make me tear up, that I did not think was possible. And I want everyone to know that it's not just possible. It is probable. It is likely. It is right there. It is waiting for you. And if your childhood was hard, you deserve it. And don't you dare tell yourself that you don't. That is a lie. That is your dysfunction talking. You absolutely deserve to feel that peace. And that is part of why I am so passionate about this work. Because if we if we actually get that message really out there and make it big, our suicide rate will go down. It really, really will. Yeah. Please take care of yourselves out there and please hold on to where you're going. And when you can't believe that you can get to a better place, look to people like Deborah, look to people like me and let yourself kind of hold on. We can believe it for you till you get there yourself and you can get there. It's inevitable. Thank you so much. I absolutely love it. You're so spot on. We all have that. We all have that intuition. We all have that wiser 
higher self that we can turn to and codependency and people like anybody that's along that you know that dark try they want to take it from us and it does take some relearning and it does take some work just like you had to do it is so worth it because then you can feel that and you can count on that and you can trust that because it's there within you yes yes i genuinely love my life and if some little magic fairy said nikki do you want to go back in time and change anything Believe it or not, I would not change anything, even the worst of the worst. It shaped me. My pain pushed me to evolve past anything that I would have ever gone for in this life. So we can make so much peace and we, we all deserve it. Every baby that comes into the world deserves that. And you were once a precious baby. And so healing is really, I think, the honoring of that. I'm so honored for you to be a part of my podcast. And I really, I hope we can do this again sometime. I really enjoyed this. I'd love to. Learned a lot from you. I love your ideas. Thank you so much again. Thank you for holding such beautiful space. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the world too. It is so, so important. I'm so grateful to connect with another person doing really good work in the world. Thank you for listening to the Inner Source Healing Podcast. It is important to give yourself the self-compassion that you deserve. And remember that your feelings matter. If you want more information or if you want to contact me, please visit my website at www.innersourcetherapy.com.